The 19th century has dawned and Napoleon Bonaparte is in power. Today on Footnoting History, it's all about Napoleonic society. It's Christine and Nathan and we're back to continue our journey through revolutionary France for those of you keeping track last week on August 15th it was Napoleon's 244th birthday so I hope you celebrated accordingly I know I did I did too and I found wine named after Empress Josephine <laughs> so I consider that part of my birthday celebration <laughs> If you joined us last month, you know that we covered five aspects of the life of Napoleon the man, from his childhood to his family, and ultimately the theories surrounding his death. Today, we widen our view to France as a whole. What are some things you would have heard about if you lived in France at the time? And what displays would you have seen? It's no secret that Napoleon's personality loomed large over the developments of his country, particularly between the years of 1800 and 1815. But, while European powers were embroiled in throne disputes, military battles, and the redrawing of borders, the people of France still had to live their own lives. So, as we explore this, we're going to be looking at five topics today. First, Napoleon's city of smugglers, then the Napoleonic Code, homosexuality in France, pageantry, and finally, lifestyles. We're beginning with the city of smugglers because it walks the border between being a military and economic endeavor, and it's something that would have affected the average person. Essentially, if you bought something in your local shop and you thought it was from England, chances are it was smuggled. Since smuggling is always an interesting topic, as are a lot of other illegal activities... We like those. <laughs> let's jump right into it. So, number one, Napoleon's city of smugglers. Relations between England and France have been notoriously difficult since... Forever? Yeah. <laughs> During the late 18th and early 19th centuries, relations were particularly tense, save for a small period around 1802, when there was a rare peace between the two countries. There was even a long stretch of time when Napoleon built a camp where he gathered his troops in order to conduct an invasion on England. Uh, this ultimately never happened. The animosity remained, and he never forgot his designs against England. So, by 1810, the Napoleonic Wars were well underway, and both countries were heavily invested in campaigns each against the other, and, as a fallout of this, trade across the English Channel uh, was so heavily regulated that only a handful of people were granted licenses to travel back and forth. England was at its lowest economic point since the start of the wars, and Napoleon conspired to take advantage of that by making an extremely bold move. He legalized English smugglers to France. His motivation was twofold. First, he hoped that smuggling guineas out of England would further hurt their fiscal situation, and second, he wanted to use the English smugglers to the French advantage. Ultimately, obviously, England still exists, so we know that they survived this enterprise, but that doesn't take away from the fascinating action Napoleon took to make this happen. Initially, he legalized the trades of the English smugglers at the town of Dunkirk, but that didn't last very long when he realized that it probably wasn't the brightest idea to be welcoming citizens of the enemy into a town that was, you know, involved in the production of French armaments. <laughs> they may have been helping France by smuggling French goods onto English soil, but they were still English, and there was always a risk that they were going to spy around and take things back to their government. So it was that the city of smugglers was born. 
Napoleon closed the port at Dunkirk to smugglers and transferred that right to Gravelines, where it remained open until Napoleon's defeat in 1814. Once the smugglers, most of whom came from Kent and Sussex, by the way, for all of you Brits out there, which are in, which are in southeast England, yes, once they were declared welcome at Gravelines, there needed to be a way for them to complete their trade-offs without allowing them to fraternize with the populace. This was, after all, still a wartime. The answer was to build them their own enclosure in the town. This so-called city was a structure fitted with guards and guns where the smugglers were contained for the duration of their time in France. Then they could jump back into their galleys and make their way to the English shores. The city was triangular in shape with each wall being no longer than 260 meters, and inside of it the smugglers were housed, fed, and conducted their commerce with the approved local merchants. As an interesting aside, of the 70 merchants approved to sell within the smuggler city, 15 were women, which is a surprisingly high number for this time. It was really its own little microcosm. It was outfitted with places for French officials and guards to sleep, offices for customs where the smugglers had to show their crew lists and other paperwork, and then there was the marketplace for the visiting Englishmen. In case you were curious, the most valued French items to go back to England were lace, silk, and leather. But, yes, of course, alcohol made up almost a third of what was traded. What drinks did the English people want from their French counterparts? Brandy and gin were the most requested. Smugglers were crafty. They predominantly used galley ships with crews of only five or six men so that they could cross the channel in only one night and outmaneuver the British customs ships because, obviously, the English weren't pleased about this agreement. To further avoid being detained by their government, the English smugglers painted fake names on the side of their boats, had false compartments where they could hide things, and were known to, at desperate times, simply throw their contraband overboard. On top of that, they had a series of lantern and flag signals that they worked out with the French port authorities so they would be allowed to dock instead of taken for enemy ships and fired on. They were highly successful, too, it seems. In 1813 alone, English smuggling vessels docked in Gravelines 606 times, and they weren't just carrying goods back and forth, because the other part of Napoleon's desire was to gain information, and he did. English smuggler Kelsey was known for bringing in the highest number of English newspapers. They were then sent to Napoleon so he could keep track of the English press, and, in my personal favorite bit of smuggling, he also managed to have French officers brought back that way. You see... The English who captured French officers liked to put them on parole, and this parole meant that they could stay in the town where they were being held and only stray up to a mile from it, unless, of course, that mile took you straight into a smuggler's ship and home to France. It's estimated that between 1811 and 1814, 299 officers returned to France this way. As you can imagine, this meant that everybody except for the English government won. The English people got the goods that they secretly wanted, France got the money it wanted, and the smugglers of England and the merchants of coastal France got to keep up the flow of making profits in a time when a military blockade was otherwise killing their industries. But forget the politics of it. For me, I'm just really sad that this isn't real place because, let's face it, I would be there in a hot second. <laughs> we, like seriously, we need to turn this into a, a theme park. I, I would go there. I mean, that wasn't what he was thinking when he built it. <laughs> no, but it's what I'm thinking when no, I'm reading it. No, no, it's like it's like a pirate cove theme park. Yes, I'm ready. Smuggle in your own things. It'd be great. Anyway, 
doesn't take me to tell you that this didn't actually cause him to win anything over England, but I like to think that he was a little bit smug about the fact that he created this at all, and you kind of have to admire his creativity. Napoleon really knew what he wanted. Yeah, he did, and one of the other things that Napoleon really wanted uh, was to fix the law of France, which brings us to our number two, the Napoleonic Code. The Civil Code, or as it's more commonly known, the Napoleonic Code, uh, is considered by some historians to be Napoleon's most lasting legacy. Even before the French Revolution, the legal system of France was a bit of a complicated mess, particularly the way that the law itself was organized. First of all, there wasn't actually such a thing as French law, in the sense of a uniform body of law which applied to every single French citizen regardless of gender or socioeconomic class. Law was highly localized and often customary in nature, and legal practices could differ a great deal between the various regions of France. The revolutionary governments, in addition to outright changing key aspects of French law, attempted to clear up the mess, but an actual reformed unified law code did not come into existence until Napoleon, so his name gets attached to it and he gets all the credit, but France was already moving in this direction when he took power. That said, Napoleon did take a surprisingly active role in the formation of the code, and he was present at over half of the committee meetings where it was discussed and debated. After much deliberation and tireless work, particularly by his second consul, Jean-Jacques Régis de Cambacere, more on him in a little bit, the civil code was first promulgated in 1804, and then it was reissued again in 1807. This is actually the first of several law codes which are promulgated during Napoleon's reign um, that cover the various aspects of French life. In fact, the civil code uh, is very specific in terms of its structure and what it deals with. The code is a kind of law known as civil law. Here in the U.S. and in the United Kingdom, uh, we operate off of a system known as common law. Without going into too much detail, the main difference between the two systems has to do with the role of judges and precedent. In common law, we place a great deal of emphasis on judicial precedent. Once a law has been interpreted in a specific context by the courts, the precedent set by that interpretation holds until it is overruled by a higher court. Under civil law, the emphasis is on the statutes and the law codes themselves, which attempt to cover any eventuality or possible circumstances, and judges have a far less active role in terms of legal interpretation. Moreover, in civil law, judges are not bound by precedent to the same degree that they are in common law. This is why the codification and standardization of French law was so very important, and why the Napoleonic Code, like most civil law codes, tends to be very detailed and very specific. Primarily, the civil code is concerned with two things, people and property. The discussions of property are where the principles of the French Revolution really shine through, because it does away with any remaining vestiges of feudalism, the dirty word that us medievalists don't like to say very much, or the old legal system's tendency to give members of the nobility special rights and privileges under the law. The code is also entirely a-religious, very much keeping in line with both the revolution and Napoleon's own sensibilities, particularly in the people section where women and children, at least from a modern perspective, really get short shrift. One area in which women are treated differently from men under the law has to do with divorce and grounds for divorce. According to the civil code, either a husband or a wife may sue for divorce on grounds of outrageous conduct, ill usage, or grievous injuries, or if either party was imprisoned for a major crime, but when it comes to infidelity, things are a little different. Husbands can divorce their wives for simple adultery, but a wife could only divorce her husband if he moved his lover, his mistress, 
into the house with her. Which is dumb on many levels, and he deserves more than just a divorce for that one. He deserves a good, swift kick in the pants. Just saying. Well, I mean, it's just, it's a bad idea. It's a bad idea to have a mistress in the first place. It's a worse idea to say, I'm going to bring her into the house. They can also get divorced by general mutual consent, but both parties have to completely agree that the marriage is untenable. And in any case of divorce, the man always gets custody of the children, and he gets to stay in the house. Quite the opposite of today, generally speaking. Yeah, the wife has to move out and into a court-approved home in order to get what we would call uh, spousal support. You know, once upon a time last year, I decided to read the entire code in one sitting. Why you would do that, Because I, I felt like it was one of those things I just had to check off my bucket list and say that I did. You wake up one day and say, I'm going to sit down and read all 600 pages of the Napoleonic Code? Can you say that you did that? Yeah, that's right. Um. Anyway, my favorite was that following a divorce, the man could remarry right away, but his ex-wife had to wait for 10 months. Besides that, women were also given the authority to draw up their own wills without their husband's permission. It also said that men younger than 18 and women younger than 15 couldn't get married. Prior to the age of 25 for men and 21 for women, it was necessary to have parental permission. That's older than it is in America to get married now. Actually, the parental permission is a really odd thing, especially to modern minds, because, as we just said, children up to 25 and 21 had to have parental consent to marry. But even after that age, prior to the age of 30, a child had to officially seek his or her parents' advice before getting married. You know, this is not the age when children necessarily believe that their parents are the wisest individuals. <laughs> Actually, maybe Napoleon was just really smart and knew that people were stupid at that point in their lives and was trying to make it a little bit better. Any objection on the part of the parents could delay, though not completely impede, the marriage. Now, these restrictions, according to some historians, are where we see Napoleon's personal belief shining through and the strongest reaction to the French Revolution, or what he perceived to be the laxness of the French Revolution. Napoleon was a social conservative, and like many other men, and yes, women, of his day, he was a firm believer in the patriarchal nature of society. But it's important to bear in mind that 19th century European society had very strong, very specific ideas about gender roles and the ways in which men and women should relate to one another. The last thing I guess we should note about the Napoleonic Code is how influential it was. The Code became the model of systematized civil law for the rest of Europe, and many European nations in the 19th century modeled their own law codes after it, particularly in places that Napoleon conquered. Actually, there's another aspect of the Napoleonic Code that leads into our next topic, which is, number three, homosexuality in France. I thought it would be apt to mention this, because the treatment of gay communities all around the world has been in the headlines quite a lot lately. So, why not examine a bit about what it would have been like to be gay in the Napoleonic period? Prior to the year 1791, sodomy and pederasty, sex between adult men and young boys, were included in the canon of laws as a crime against nature, and carried a punishment of being burned at the stake. Obviously, this wasn't a fate anyone wanted, so when the Penal Code of 1791 was created, and there was a significant change made to it, the gay community noticed. The Penal Code did not go so far as to outright legalize homosexual acts, but it did something equally significant. In its list of sex crimes, the transgression of rape was listed, but crimes against nature were not. This omission was continued in the Napoleonic Code and the Penal Code of 1810. 
In fact, in preparation for the Penal Code of 1810, a survey of the French courts was taken, and only two of the 74 courts requested the addition of sodomy to the code, which did not happen. Yes, and the changing of the law did not necessarily mean the changing of public opinion, though in some cases we will mention later, homosexuality was accepted. There was still a movement to consider it a crime again, and some doctors spoke out against it as a violation of the natural order of life. People were not all embracing of it, but they also could not do anything against it. Because of the removal of the strictest penalties, it became much more difficult to find yourself arrested for this sort of behavior. In fact, the most likely way someone would get imprisoned for being involved in homosexual sex is the same way one would be imprisoned for heterosexual sex by committing an act of public indecency, meaning having sex in a place where people could see you doing it. No matter who you were sleeping with, that was kind of considered unacceptable. Police didn't patrol the areas known for being hotbeds of homosexuality anymore, but if it fell into their hands, they would hand out a punishment. This obviously brings us to the question of, what was the punishment? Well, since, you know, you could no longer be burned for it, that kind of took that off of the table, Napoleon's overwhelming desire to avoid scandal, which we mentioned in our last podcast, worked in your favor. He didn't want public trials for people arrested for acts of sodomy because that would just draw attention to the situation. Instead, he handed the right of judgment over to the exclusive discretion of the prefect of police. What happened next? Well, the most common punishment received under Napoleon's police force was to be arrested, be held for several weeks, and then subjected to internal exile. That meant that while you could stay in France, you could no longer live in the city where you originally resided. So if you were living in Paris and somebody caught you sleeping with your lover, you could be sent to say you have to go live in Marseille or Calais or anywhere that was not Paris. That, I guess, could stink, but if you were really clever, you could just have your lover move with you and then be more discreet the next time. <laughs> Luckily, there aren't that many cases of this punishment in the period, and many historians refer to the time after 1791 as one of relative freedom for homosexuals. Eventually, in the 1840s, so post-Napoleon, laws would tighten up again, but for the time being, if you could keep yourself to yourself, you could likely stay out of trouble. Or, in the best of cases, you could be publicly open about your sexual identity, and Napoleon set the example by simply not caring. There are two people we can think of who had this sort of thing happen for them, Jean-Jacques Régis de Cambacere and uh, Joseph Fievé. The first, Cambacere, I already mentioned, served as Napoleon's second consul from 1799 to 1804, and when Napoleon became emperor, Cambacere became his chancellor, until Napoleon fell from power. He was trained as a jurist, and was one of the people responsible for the creation of the Napoleonic Code. Everyone in France knew that he was gay, and he was popular at the Palais Royal, uh, one of the main hotspots for gay men in Paris, and remained unmarried his entire life, preferring the company, obviously, of other single men. Napoleon's reaction? Well, he teased him about it, just like everybody else. There was probably some tweaking of ears involved. I'm sure there was. Fievé came to prominence later. He was one of Napoleon's advisors, and he served as the prefect of the department of Nieve from 1813 to 1815. What's interesting about him is while Cambacera was always single, Fievé lived openly in a relationship with uh, a writer and playwright uh, by the name of Théodore Leclerc. Uh, Fievé is known for having remarked, 
when one has a vice, one should know how to wear it. I actually really like that, and I wish that they would revive that phrase because it's kind <laughs> of amazing. Before we jump to our next topic, though, for anybody who's going to Paris anytime soon and is interested in this, there are five places that serve as the main destinations for people looking for homosexual liaisons. The first, which Nathan already mentioned, was the Palais Royale. During its heyday, the Palais Royale was a center for pretty much everything, from prostitution to gambling and drinking and all that sort of fun stuff, so it's natural that homosexual encounters would be found there as well. After that, the Tuileries Gardens were popular, as was the Champs-Élysées and the embankments of the Seine, especially near Pont Neuf. And lastly, yeah. along the Rue Saint-Fiacre. I think you'll notice that if you go to them now, things are a little bit different, but, you know, you'll know why you would have gone in the days of Napoleon, as long as you didn't plan to actually have sex on the street. <laughs> well, Napoleon's hatred of scandal was balanced by his adoration of celebration. It's that love of grandeur that we're discussing in our next topic. Number four, pageantry. He liked for his people to be able to revel in the victories of the Grand Armée of France, the creation of the French Empire, and the glories of the French people themselves. The people of Paris in particular benefited from Napoleon's penchant for these grand displays, witnessing innumerable parades honoring returning military heroes, uh, a salvo of a hundred guns upon the birth of his son in 1811, and seeing the beginning of the construction of the Arc de Triomphe, among other monuments. Uh, the Arc de Triomphe, we should note, uh, began to be built in 1806, and although it was not completed until well after Napoleon's fall from power, the Arc served as an important focal point for Napoleon's grand entrance into Paris with his second wife, Empress Marie-Louise of Austria, in 1810. Since the structure was nowhere near finished, it lacked the kind of impression and grandeur that Napoleon wanted to convey. So, in order to sort of simulate this, he had the unfinished portions of the Ark fashioned out of wood so that he and his new wife could enter Paris in grand style, uh, passing under the Ark as they commemorated the military successes of the Grand Army of France. Still, lovely as I'm sure that was, in order to talk about what you may have witnessed as a Napoleonic Parisian, we're going to give you a little run-through of an even bigger celebration, the day that Napoleon and his first wife, Josephine, were crowned Emperor and Empress of France. The year was 1804, the day was December 2nd, and it was a Sunday, if you're keeping track. The morning began with a light snowfall, but before the procession from the Tuileries Palace to Notre Dame Cathedral, the skies cleared up. Throngs of people came out to watch the procession, but if you didn't want to line the streets like everybody else, there were two other options. You could have been lucky enough to score tickets to sit inside the cathedral and witness the coronation. Or, you could have paid upwards of 300 francs to watch the procession from inside someone's home, utilizing their windows and balconies. That's right, people sold window space for other people who wanted to watch the procession. Well, it's kind of like what we do for the modern Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. You charge people? No, well, sure, people charge people to see. Yeah, but you, would you charge people? No, because I'm a nice guy. I just wouldn't let strangers in. Anyway, <laughs> for free, though, if you were... I guess the word would be nimble enough, you could climb up to the rooftop and watch from there. From that vantage point, you no doubt saw all the flags, the draped garlands, and the artificial flowers that people hung outside their shops and homes for the occasion. Beginning at around 6 a.m., two things happened. First, the first invitation holders showed up at the cathedral. Well, that didn't go too well for them because they got turned away since the finishing touches were still being put on. Second, gun salutes began that continued hourly. By 7 a.m., things really began to come together. 
500 musicians and instrumentalists made their way to two grandstands that were built near the procession's crossings. Between 9 and 10 a.m., the diplomats began to arrive at the cathedral, which by now was prepared to have people come into it. This was at the same time that Pope Pius VII set out in his carriage from the palace. He was decked out in robes of white and crimson. In addition to his entourage of clergymen, he was accompanied by 108 dragoons and was led by the Papal Nuncio Spironi, who rode on an ass while carrying a cross. Now, in every memoir and commentary I read, this was seen as the absolute highlight of the event by the viewers. They really enjoyed that spectacle. <laughs> now, of course, the Pope was not the star of the show. That was Napoleon and Josephine. Their procession left the Tuileries almost an hour after the Pope, and was a little bit larger, to say the least. It included 150 horses pulling 25 carriages, and they were escorted by six regiments of mounted grenadiers, mounted chaussures, uh, curiosers, and cavalry. Not too impressive, really. I'm sure that they could have done a bit better. Mm -hmm. If you caught a glimpse of the imperial couple, you would have seen that Josephine wore a white gown embroidered with gold bees and an ermine robe that was carried by Napoleon's sisters, much to their dismay. For his part, Napoleon wore a short cape and a plumed toque to complement his imperial purple tunic and ornate crown as they rode in their gilded coach that was drawn by eight bay horses to the sounds of cannon fire and jingling bells. They arrived at the cathedral where they were greeted by the Pope, donned their coronation robes and imperial regalia before entering into the cathedral with an escort of state dignitaries. The ceremony included the singing of the Vene Creator, followed by Napoleon and Josephine receiving triple unction from the Pope. In an act typical of Napoleon's personality, he didn't allow the Pope to crown him, but instead crowned himself and then crowned his wife. This was followed by various blessings and much exaltation, including the full orchestra and choir singing the Vivat Imperator in Iternum. It was very, very glamorous. And I still wish I had been there, because you know, even if this was today... I would have at least been able to watch it on television, bought it on DVD, and listened to all the commentators, and been very, very happy. And seen the expose in people. No, I don't want an expose. I want the classy, elegant <laughs> side of the imperial family. Napoleon, first of all, would never have allowed an expose in people. Let's just, let's just put that out there. People would have tried, and there would be no more People magazine. <laughs> Assuming you were one of the estimated 500,000 normal people waiting outside, you had to wait until 3.30 for the ceremony to end. This was signaled by loud shouts of, Long live the Emperor! from within the cathedral, while cannon salvos outside marked the completion of the coronation. The important persons left the cathedral at approximately 4 p.m. and processed back to the palace. At the conclusion of all of this crazy showmanship, it's believed that Napoleon and Josephine returned to their apartments and had dinner alone. I bet they were pretty tired. I like to think so. I mean, it was a long day, lots of heavy robes and crown wearing and cheering, and the next day you had to, you know, run an empire. It's also December in Paris. It's freezing. Well, yes. But you know what? Despite it being cold... People waited outside, so there you have it. Napoleon and Josephine are having dinner. And everyone else now lives in Imperial France. But what does that mean for everybody? That brings us to topic number five, lifestyles. This is perhaps one of the most broad, but it is also one which will give you a snapshot of the everyday details by summing up some of the main changes to France. For example, during the ancient regime, it was popular for there to be things like crowns and fleur-de-lis, the symbols of the monarchy everywhere. I'm talking from tavern signs to clothing. 
When the revolution began, this was wiped out and replaced with the tricolor and other seemingly Republican images. And if you were really up on things, you'd wear your little guillotine necklace. But that's <laughs> we mentioned that last time. Well, the empire had its own symbols. Napoleon was referred to as the eagle. So, yes, eagles appeared in places now. But if you weren't a fan of birds and wanted to use some other sort of imperial image, you could use the imperial bee. That's the same golden bee that we just mentioned decorated Josephine's coronation clothes. Those were all over France at the time. On top of that, when Napoleon came back to power after going to Elba in 1815, violets became associated with him because there was a belief that the emperor would come and rescue them all from the tyranny of the bourbons when the violets bloomed so you might have been wearing a violet in your hair or on your lapel or in your clothes somewhere to show, to your, show loyalty. your loyalty as opposed to if you were a royalist then you would have worn a white lily well speaking of clothes in our french revolution podcast we mentioned that clothing became uh, much lighter um, more greek and roman inspired well, you'll all be happy to know, I'm sure, that the undergarments that people did not like at the time, they began to reemerge under Napoleon, so you were less likely to flash something in public whenever you didn't mean to. In a way, this is symbolic in and of itself, because the longer Napoleon was in power, the stricter and uh, more conservative society became. But before we get ahead of ourselves, uh, one more thing about clothes and Napoleon. Earlier in the podcast, we talked about how Napoleon wanted to ruin the economy of England. Well, along with that, he wanted to, naturally, bolster the economy of France. As such, he would grow very angry if he saw any women wearing muslin or other fabrics that he knew to be imported from England or any of its holdings, colonies, or allies. He heavily encouraged the use of silk from Lyon, as well as cambric and leno. Uh, velvet was also popular during the winter. But what were the women using these fabrics for? Well, if you've ever gone dress shopping... Like I do! And I haven't. Uh, you've probably encountered the Empire Waist Dress. Uh, you also see this in a lot of period films, adaptations of Jane Austen. Uh, this is the very fitted bust uh, that sort of hangs loosely from, uh, what would you call that, the bottom of the bust? Um, it's fitted over the chest, and then it yeah, hangs it, loosely and makes everybody look pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> This style didn't exclusively begin during the Empire, but the Empire was the time whenever it reached its zenith, and if you ever look at portraits of the era, you'll see all of the women wearing this dress. While pastels or any other light color were suitable, the richest ladies favored whites, especially at night, and so if you wore white, you were showing your status. The other fads that occurred were a love of fake flowers for the hair and cashmere shawls for all occasions. And because these dresses didn't have pockets in them, it was essential for a lady to carry around her reticule, a small bag often worn with a tie around the wrist. The men wore darker colors that had come into favor during the revolution, but the cravat, the necktie, was the way where you could kind of go crazy and put your own personal flair on the style. And then, of course, you would need some place to wear all of these clothes, which is good and bad at the same time in Napoleonic France. You see, as much as Napoleon loved parties, the people who attended them were not so thrilled. At the beginning of the empire, things were still relatively loose. Napoleon wanted to establish his own court, not bring back the court of the Bourbon kings. So, basically, he wanted a grand court, but without the scandals and intrigues that made a court appealing. So, you know, taking out all of the fun and all of the, gossip the, the intrigue and, the, yes, exactly, the whispers behind each other's back. He didn't like any of that. 
I mean, it was the kind of thing where if he saw you, if you were a single man and he saw you flirting with a married woman, guess what? You got sent to your post in Egypt next week. <laughs> By the time he divorced Josephine and married Marie Louise, people found his entertainment so tedious that they probably would have preferred to be elsewhere. He liked all of his military officers to wear their uniforms while they attended, and it was typical for men not to be allowed to sit while at a salon. Actually, you know, that's, that's very true, because when his stepdaughter Hortense held her own salon, it was characterized by having tea served at 10 p.m., allowing men to wear whatever they pleased, Shocking. scandalous, Shocking. and having a large center table around which everyone, including the men, could sit and chat. It became one of the weekly highlights that everyone wanted to be invited to, but it also got her a lot of criticism, especially from Napoleon, because it was considered loose by comparison of the true imperial court. So, be glad you were never in one of those imperial salons, because, well, you would never have been able to sit down, Nathan. <laughs> That's fine. There are plenty of other places where you can sit down. For example, if you were invited to the Tuileries Palace or any of the other imperial residences, and were asked to play a game of whist, which is a uh, popular card game of the time, uh, based on, um, it's, it's much like a bridge or spades, it's a game where you catch tricks and make bets and that sort of thing. It was considered a high compliment to be asked to play at the table of the Empress or one of the other members of the Imperial family. But even then, some men would prefer not to be asked to play, because if they weren't playing cards, the odds were higher that they would get to have a conversation with Napoleon. That's true. Something else to note was that Napoleon tried at some points to bring back members of the old aristocracy. So you never know just who might be at your whist table. However, a lot of the members of the new aristocracy weren't too thrilled with this incorporation. They saw the return of military men with honors they received because of commissions and titles to diminish the meaning of the honors that they received, so that kind of brews a little bit of hostility there. But at least you had your options because, you know, Napoleon demanded that balls happen all the time. His sisters, Pauline and Caroline, along with his stepdaughter Hortense, were all expected to hold weekly parties in addition to their salons, so you could essentially, if you were popular and lucky, end up going from house to house all week long. Even after the end of his disastrous Russian campaign, Napoleon maintained this sort of schedule of balls in, and parties in Paris. Uh, he had them thrown, including his favorite masquerades, and some of them had entertainment in the form of his sister or his stepdaughter gathering their friends and performing a choreographed ballet. The atmosphere at court was stifling, so you may not have wanted to attend a dinner, but you could still enjoy a kind of party, uh, perhaps even one held in the theater at the Tuileries Palace. All while you were wearing your whitest dress with some faux flowers in your hair and admiring the decorative imperial B's and N's on the tapestries, which, interestingly enough, during the time while Napoleon was on Elba and the Bourbon Kings were back, they didn't bother changing. Well, that certainly was a lot of Napoleonic France, But wasn't it was a it? good lot. It was a good lot of Napoleonic <laughs> France. And we could do even more if this podcast were three hours long. Anyway, we hope you've enjoyed our five topics on Napoleonic France. Uh, stay tuned for a return to this period in future podcasts. We'll be covering the Congress of Vienna, Josephine's first marriage, and the intrigues of Napoleon's sister and her many men. Until then, I'm Christine. And I'm Nathan. And this has been Footnoting History. We'll see you next time. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find further reading suggestions related to this week's podcast. You can also like us on our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. 
Join us next week when we'll be talking about Jesuit missionaries in China. Until then, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.